Um, the reading's taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6. It's on page 1148 if you're following it in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Were you not, did you, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Feels like maybe we should pray before we look at this passage, should we? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the joy of being in your presence. Thank you that you call us uh, together to worship you. We invite you by your spirit, Lord, to um, illuminate our minds and change our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series um, on Corinthians, um, and if you haven't picked up a little booklet like this, which accompanies the series, then please do as you go out. There are really helpful background notes that take us far further than a, a sermon can on a Sunday morning. But we've offered um, daily readings and uh, questions to think through the different topics. So please take that, I recommend it highly. Um, but we've been looking at different themes. We're in the third week now. And one of the things that we've discovered is that the church in Corinth was dynamic and good looking. It was powerful. There was powerful, wonderful preaching. Um, they loved spirit gifts, especially prophecy and tongues as well. And we'll find out more about that in the next few weeks. And miracles. They loved miracles. Um, and freedom. Freedom in the spirit. They, they loved that. Lots of that. Lots of freedom in their worship. Except that they weren't free. Not really. And that was the problem. The church in Corinth was enslaved to the culture around it. And instead of changing the city, the city was changing them. 
Now, we've seen how as Paul writes to them to try and help them rediscover the truth of the gospel, he, he challenges their ideas of, of wisdom and power that come from their culture by um, taking them back to the cross, which was a scandal for Jewish thought and was foolishness to the Gentiles. And yet for those being saved, the power of God. Last, last week we saw how um, Paul brings to light their disputes over leadership styles by reminding them that it's all about humble service. One plants, another waters, but it is always God who makes things grow. And now Paul's letter turns to the area of sexual behaviour. Ancient Corinth was well known for its sort of moral licence and a number of schools of Greek philosophy taught that sex wasn't really a significant moral issue at all, just a question of personal choice or lifestyle. And that sort of flexible approach to sexual morality had found its way into the church. For the Corinthian Christians, influenced as they were by sort of Greek uh, dualism and, and, and sort of Gnosticism, being spiritual, which is what they prided themselves on, meant focusing on the mind and its ideas over the body and its behaviour. Typically, the body was seen as being dirty or less important. And so for some of them, being spiritual meant abstaining from sexual relations completely because that had to do with the body, and they were above that. Others had the exact opposite drew the exact opposite sort of conclusions from the same logic. Um, because the body is unimportant, it doesn't matter what we do with it. And so they were opened up to complete sexual freedom. And it seems among that group, their slogan was this, as a spirit-filled believer, I have the right to do anything. I'm free. Now, as Paul looks at that church, um, he sees with distress that the product and the result of that attitude is moral chaos in the church. And in the passage that we have, which is the heart of a section in his letter from the beginning of chapter five to the end of chapter seven, Paul tries to address that. And the section begins like this, chapter five, verse one. It is actually reported, says Paul, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing that? I have the right to do anything. Doesn't that sound a little bit like today's culture? Flexible approach to sexual morality in our sort of desire-fueled culture. Anything goes and we see the results around us. It's a form of freedom that actually has a terribly dark side to it. Last August, a Sunday Times survey revealed that 58% of the population regularly watch internet pornography. Generation Z, those who are 22 and under, are most likely to start watching porn between the ages of 15 and 17. And they say that they now watch it most days. Sexting, 
The sending of explicit photos or videos by internet has become a massive problem amongst teens. A recent French report told of a 12-year-old girl whose school friends circulated a photo of her in her underwear on social media and then launched an online petition encouraging her to commit suicide. Fortunately, she managed to get help. The number of young people seeing gender transition is seeking gen gender transition is at an all-time high. One NHS trust offers gender identity services for children under 18 with some patients as young as three or four years old. They have a record number of referrals and have seen a 3,200% increase in numbers of patients under 18 in the last 10 years. Incidents of rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment in UK universities have trebled in three years. According to an all-parliamentary report last year, sex trafficking is taking place on an industrial scale across England and Wales, much of it passing through London. It is overwhelmingly foreign national women who are being exploited. This is our world. I have a right to do anything. It has terrible consequences. And for Paul, that attitude is false freedom. Our passage begins like this. I have the right to do anything, verse 12, you say. But not everything is beneficial, replies Paul. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, says Paul. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. But the body, says Paul, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You see, the Corinthians have got it the wrong way round. True Christian conduct is not about whether I have the right to do something, but whether my behavior is helpful to those around me. And far from being unimportant, what I do with my body is where it all begins. So, Paul turns things upside down. Verses 14 to 17 of our passage all focus on the body. In fact, in, the, in this passage that we're reading today, the word body comes eight times. Not talking about the body of which we're ashamed, but the body given and created by God. You see, in the logic of Paul, our bodies are not for immorality, but immortality. Yes, they're worth so much more. And so, in verse 14 of our passage, Paul, at the heart of his argument, points to Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus, who came in human flesh, that's what incarnation means. Jesus, who, who used his body to build and to bless others, to help and to heal. Jesus, whose bodily resurrection demonstrated not only the power of God, but also the promise of our bodily future. Jesus rose from the dead. God will raise us also. And it happens in our bodies. Because we're in Christ, says Paul, Christ's resurrection is already at work in and through our bodies now. 
His power is in us. We are, in Paul's phrase, members of Christ himself because his life is in us, changing and renewing us. Now that is the opposite of Greek philosophy. Salvation, you see, for Paul, is not just about the soul, about looking until we die and then we get rid of our dirty bodies and we are saved with the soul. No. Salvation is about our physical bodies being part of the new heaven and the new earth. Paul's saying that our physical existence is actually at the heart of God's plan. It's at the heart of his kingdom. Salvation is about our bodies. It's about our physicality. It's about our, it's, it's about our, our material existence. It's about the hummus, the earth, that makes us human. That wordplay in Latin actually works as well in, in Hebrew, where God creates Adam, the first human, out of Adama, the earth. But our humanity also calls us to humility. That's why caring for the physical world, our planet, creation care is so important. It's at the heart of salvation. Because God loves the material creation. And as we serve God's creation, we invest in new creation. We invest in the kingdom. That's why what we do with our bodies matters. And that's why sexual immorality is so anathema to our calling. In Jewish thought, that phrase refers to any form of sexual sin outside marriage. The Greek word is porneia, which obviously gives us pornography, but actually at its root, mean, porneia means prostitute. And porneo means to have sex with a prostitute. And that, for Paul, is the ultimate contradiction. You see, the sexual union is the opposite of the I have the right to do anything culture. It's more than simply a physical act that will gratify my desires. Sex has a profound effect on our spiritual and inner lives. It's about deep sharing. Interestingly, faced with the cultural pressures of Corinth, Paul takes the believers back to Genesis. Verse 16, he quotes Genesis, affirming marriage between a man and a woman as the context for sexual union in which, and this is his quote, the two become one flesh. To join in sexual union with a prostitute is to compromise somehow your spiritual union with Christ. What we do with our bodies is immensely significant. We can't simply subordinate what's right to what happens to feel good at the time. That's not freedom. For Paul, that's bondage. Which is why Paul in our passage, writing to the Corinthians, does not mince his words. Flee, he says, from sexual immorality. You can do much better. You're called to more. Now, of course, sexual immorality is more than prostitution. And misuse of the body, <coughs> excuse me, is more than sexual behavior alone. But that's Paul's point. Our bodies were made for so much more. 
And the ultimate question that is at the heart of what Paul is trying to say is this. How can we honour God with our bodies in everything we do? That's the real question. We need today to reaffirm the goodness of God-given sexuality in a culture where freedom means freedom to become and do what I like. But at the same time, we need to affirm that sexual behavior is actually not the defining element of our identity. Whatever our experience, our understanding, our ups and downs, as physical and spiritual people, we are first and foremost, according to scripture, defined by Christ. Doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter where we're from, doesn't matter how old we are or our background, we're defined by Christ. And in him, we are free. So Paul goes on to open things up in the next chapter by talking about calling. He talks about some who are called to marry, others who are called to be single. But we could enlarge that. We could say some are called to teach, others called to heal. Fundamentally, whatever our calling, our situation, we can honour God with our bodies. Why? Well, here we come to the heart of it all. Because for Paul, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, those of you who were here last week will perhaps remember that Paul in the passage just before talks about the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's true, whenever we come together to worship God, to call on Christ in the power of the Spirit, God is there, God dwells there. That's why church should be such an amazing experience, why people should come in and sense something different. But here, Paul takes a collective image and he applies it to us individually. For each of us, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the place of God's presence. Now, can you see how far we've gone from the body as a dirty thing? This is extraordinary. What could be more holy and special than a temple? The place where God dwells. That's why as followers of Christ, we're called to be holy. Because holiness is what a temple is about. But it's also why as Christ followers, we're called to fullness of life. Because the temple was always the place where God's life was most, was most impacted and, and full. Do you remember that vision from Ezekiel who was in the, in the exile longing for the temple and he, in his mind's eye he saw the temple with a stream of water going out of it from, from the holiest place inside under the altar coming out and flowing out. It was the stream of God's life. And where did it go? It went straight out the doors. And wherever it went, it brought life and healing to the nations. What a beautiful picture of what a temple should be. And in this passage, Paul says that our bodies, our, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. God longs for everything we do with our bodies to be a, a revelation of his love and glory to those around. That's not just about sexual behaviour. It's about everything we do. And it begins with each one. 
when we start living like that, allowing our bodies to be temples of the Spirit, overflowing with God's love and generosity, then we start to have an impact. We start to sow seeds of love in a culture that is lost. We start to be signs of healing for those who are broken and struggling. Now the truth is that we're all like that. And actually, it begins with us. The Holy Spirit in us. In fact, Paul goes further and, and says that we are not only temples of the Holy Spirit, but, but we belong to him. Our bodies are not actually our own. They're on loan. They actually belong to God. He has bought them with a price. Now the image of buying things back is a, is a beautiful image from the ancient world. It's the, it's the image of the slave market. The slave who was anything but free would be bought at a price and then would belong to the master. But here's the amazing thing, by Jesus' death on the cross, we are bought with a price. That's how much he values us. And as he buys us with a price, he brings real freedom. But we now belong to him. Our bodies are his. Not so that he can condemn us or stifle us, but so that he can teach us real freedom. Because you see that, unlike what society says, where freedom is self-made, true freedom is given at a price. God reaches down to us in our slavery. And in Christ, he frees us at a price. True freedom brings forgiveness. It brings a new start. It brings healing. God bringing us out of slavery, giving us life, true freedom. It's not when we do what we want. It's when we let him do what he wants. And suddenly we discover that our bodies can be vehicles of glory. We can be delivered. We can be changed. Do you remember the amazing story in John's Gospel of the woman caught in adultery? What an incredible picture of sexual exploitation. But does Jesus come in and condemn? No, he frees. He restores. In his extraordinary compassion, Jesus kneels next to the woman and he brings her life, he gives her value. He undoes the curse on her life and he sets her free so she can then walk in freedom, go and sin no more. Now can you see why Paul is so passionate about explaining to the Corinthians that what they think means nothing, what they do with their bodies on, a, on the day off is actually integral to their being a, a light in the world, shining out. Because each one of them, like each one of us, is called to be a temple, a place where God dwells. Now, there is probably no area that is more difficult, where it's more difficult to stand as a disciple of Christ today than in the area of our sexuality. And yet, you know, just like Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, he, he comes to us with the same open arms of compassion. 
And it seems to me really important as we read this passage and as we sort of dig into it, that we realize that, that actually it all starts with us. We are the ones who are struggling and broken. It's no good thinking about what we can bring to others. Let's start with ourselves. Some here this morning are maybe in slavery to pornography. Some of us have a distorted desire of the opposite sex. Some are struggling with same-sex attraction. Some feel a profound dislocation between their inner self and their outward appearance. Let's go beyond the sexual area. Some are struggling with eating disorders. Many of us have suffered abusive relationships which have deeply wounded us and led us into a protective shell of fear. Some of us are living with a terrible burden of guilt. Some of us have disabilities which we feel set us apart from others. Some have poor self-image and find it hard to believe that God loves their body. Some of us live with a deep heartache because we never got married. Some live with the constant pain of an unhappy marriage. Some of us live with the pain of divorce. Others have carried the sadness of loss for many, many years. Friends, we need to help each other. We need to help each other along the road to wholeness. This is, this is the start. Church should be a safe place where together we learn. We need to have the courage to open up conversations and to listen and not to judge. We need to give each other permission to move forward. You know, it doesn't matter what we've been through. God can hold it all. He's, he's big enough to handle everything. Our bodies, temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's the first place where God acts to redeem and to heal. Is here. He acts to renew and to restore. Our bodies are the first training ground for discipleship. Now, sometimes healing doesn't come in this life, we know that. Sometimes the ways of God are mysterious, it is often really complex. We need huge compassion, but we are called to trust him today with what we are, to surrender our bodies to him, to allow our bodies to be a home for the king. Think of that verse in Romans where Paul is writing and he says this, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and pleasing act of worship. 